Hello and welcome to Trade-Offs, a new podcast series from Fidelity International, where we aim to uncover how companies are wrestling with sustainability. When it comes to ESG, how do chief executives decide what makes the most sense for their businesses and all their stakeholders? I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research, and for this inaugural episode, I'm in Boston on the East Coast of the United States. I'm standing outside the towering offices of one of the world's biggest companies in one of the world's largest financial institutions. There's a huge Stars and Stripes flag blowing in the wind, and hanging next to it, there's another that proudly reads a name that's synonymous with the United States in finance, Bank of America. I'm here to interview the bank's chief executive, Brian Moynihan, about the decisions he's had to make to ensure his company remains ahead of the sustainability challenge. With a market cap of more than $250 billion, Bank of America plays a leading role in economies and communities across the U.S. and beyond. Let's go inside and ask him how he does it. Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America, welcome to Tradeoffs. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, you've been the head of one of the world's biggest banks, and I guess one of the world's largest companies for more than a decade. And over that time, we've witnessed a seismic shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, and what people expect from responsible corporate citizens. Banks like yours have influence over not just the direction of individual companies, but of entire economies. And, and my first question is, how have you sought to exercise that influence? Influence, I think, is a strong word. We reflect. We reflect what goes on around us. So we run our company for profits and purpose. And we reflect you know, our customer base and what goes on among them. So a, a company issuing bonds, and they go to investors in the market. A, a consumer wanting to borrow money, bringing money in from the markets to lend them the money. So we're, we, we reflect the economy. So it's not like we cause it to happen, we reflect it. And so when you think about things like uh, you know, stakeholder capitalism, things like that, it's a reflection of us being in the middle, helping you know, cement together our customers, our, our, our teammates, our shareholders, and our communities together. Um, and that's, that's how we run the company. A lot of these decisions that you need to make as a CEO, uh, you know, reflecting the needs of, of, of community are difficult and no single choice can, can keep everyone happy. You find yourself at the nexus of customers and regulators and shareholders and politicians and uh, employees, of course, and the list goes on. Um, but some of these trade-offs that we're exploring or the decisions around sustainability, uh, some of them must must bite. You may call these, you know, it, it's a balancing act. But what's been the most difficult for Bank of America to balance? We believe in profits and purpose, not, and that's called the genius of the end. And Jim Collins, a great business, wrote, wrote about it in 1996, I think it was, not the tyranny of the or, which you profits or purpose, and you drive yourself crazy trying to do one or the other. So we believe you can do both. And so do we need to make trade-offs in terms of what we invest in tomorrow versus what we invest in the next day? You do. Um, but it but if you think about it, if those trade-offs are one in derogation of the other, then you've got a problem. If they're to promote both and it's just a prioritization, you know, then it's fine. Because you can't do things that are against the interest of you know, your broader stakeholders or else the company over time is going to have a problem. 
These are not new concepts. We had the sustainable development goals, the SDGs. We now have stakeholder capitalism metrics that we developed to say this is what stakeholder capitalism is. So do we make trade-offs? The answer is, it's, I call it balance. We have a way we run our company called Responsible Growth. And, and so in order for the growth to stick to your ribs, in order for the activities to stay with you, in order for clients to be loyal across time, it's balancing as opposed to trade-offs. We make prioritization decisions. You know, some teammate wants to invest in this, and we don't think it's right. It has nothing to do with the trade-off. It has to do with it's not the priority of the moment. So the trade-off is a false choice, we say, between profits and purpose. You've got to do both because then, then they play off each other, and they build on each other, and you can keep doing them across time. If you think just, I'm going to make money, and that's all I'm going to do, sooner or later you run into a trap. And, you know, and that's what shows is that the people who don't have good governance or don't, don't have a stakeholder mentality, you know, our research says if you avoid those companies as an investor, you avoid the failures. It doesn't mean all of them are going to fail. You avoid the failures. So somewhere out of that, those group of people who aren't thinking long term and are going to be the failures. So, so find out who's thinking long term. Well, the SDGs or the metrics around that or something will tell you who's thinking long term. I want to come back to time horizons in a little bit because I think it's really important for us to understand how you how you manage your business. But if we shift a little bit from that overview, I wanted to talk, I guess, about transition risk. And, and Bank of America is a massive financial institution, I suppose, with relatively small uh, scope one and scope two emissions. So the emissions that relate to your operations and the energy used for it. The scope three emissions, the emissions of the companies that you uh, finance and support, I suppose, pose a far bigger problem. And some critics or some observers might say that writing a check to an oil company could undermine the battle against climate change. And I'd love to hear your response from your vantage point to the, those narratives that get created. We believe as a company, and you know, I'm not unique in this, and that this, these words are used everywhere from religious leaders to political leaders to uh, societal leaders to companies, you know, which is a just transition. We have a belief where we got to get to, but the idea is you can't be binary about it. And if you are, it's not going to stick to the ribs because the citizens will reject it if they can't have the power and the energy, and we can't do it on an unfair basis. A just transition means it's just for the people who work, the energy companies, it's just for the new energy companies, it's just for the consumers of energy. It's just for the rich countries of the world, and it's just for the developing countries of the world. Because we can't, how cynical would it be to say, we burn fossil fuels to get where you are, but you can't. Even if you have them below your ground, you can't take them out and sell them and get the capital to sustain your people because we don't think that's a good thing to do. That's not a right thing to do. So we have to figure out how to make it just for everybody, and that's what we're working on. But it has to be a transition. It has to be measurable. A firm belief I have, none of this happens without capitalism. And we're aligning capitalism to what society needs because capitalism has the money. It's just that simple. Governments don't have the money. Charity, which is a wonderful thing, it, the whole charity in the world is like a trillion to a year. It's not enough to do anything here. Governments are all running deficits. They got a real problem in front of them. It's not like they have a lot of money to spend. So what's going to drive it? Yes, we only have small emissions in you know scope one and two our energies. But when we commit to clean purchase power for our, to power our company, a power company can build a solar installation in North Carolina that they just agreed to build. It's that demand cycle. It's our net zero commitment that creates the demand that allows that power company, along with us and other companies, to build that uh, clean energy installation, which is a traditional power company making the transition. So don't forget that even companies don't have huge emissions in their own can help drive demand. I'm telling you that the private sector will lead this, the private sector will drive it, and their commitments to a transition end up in the big just transition for everybody. 
and it'll drive the activity because at the end of the day, that's a perpetual machine. It, it just goes on forever because it's demand. It's fundamental demand for services and change. So when you talk about just transition, I'm thinking about uh, a, a thermal coal or a coal-fired power plant, which many are keen to exclude or divest, which I guess taken to the extreme could leave communities without electricity or uh, communities without with employment or job opportunities. So how do we strive, practically speaking, to make that transition fair um, and catch up sure. markets that are in transition? So if you take coal-fired electricity, the question is, you want to reduce the emissions, you're going to have to change that over time. The reality is, it is the fundamental power. So we, it's got to be a holistic view of it. So fundamentally, we've we got to be willing to pay a little bit more for that bicycle, because we're going to have to pay for a little higher cost of power. So, you know, there has to be citizens have to understand this may cost more money. Uh, companies have to understand it costs more money, etc. But we've got to do it in a way that doesn't cost so much money, people reject it. So to divest doesn't do any good. If somebody owns a coal plant and sells it, if somebody owns shares in a company owns a coal plant and they sell them, that, that's good for them. But the reality is the coal plant's still operating. So the question is, how do we take the coal plant over time and convert it? Well, first you can carbon capture storage on it. Then you can start to build uh, facilities that can replace it. And then it, they convert it to gas. And then gas to you know, ultimately take it out to hydrogen or, or maybe the plant. But that's a question of time. And so what you want to do is that's, that's when a just transition means it has to be a transition. But you also have to think about it as a business question, not as a philosophical question. Because if you just say divest, what will happen is all go into places in private who may not be as interested in this question as we are. So are there consequences of the just transition? And very supportive of your answer, and it makes a lot of sense to me. It's something that we think about at Fidelity. But does it mean that we have a slower pace of change? Does it mean that we carry higher financial burden in the system? Will it go fast enough or slow enough? There's going to be accounting for this at all times. The question is just to do something. And so one of the challenges is people are talking about something in 2050. So you can't ignore that it takes steps to get there. But also, you can't get wound up. You just want people to get going. And what's been unbelievable is the amount of net zero commitments by private sector companies, the net zero commitments by states, cities, countries, et cetera. It covers, you know, 4,000, 5,000 companies have a net zero commitment. 95% of GDP as a country level has a net zero commitment. Do they have exactly how they get there? No, but they have it. And then we, the people in the private sector, can sit there and figure it out because now we have a duration that somebody's doing something. You can build markets around carbon carbon capture. You can build markets around carbon markets. You can build markets around the transition value. And it, but that's but that's how we solve these things. And then capitalism come in and drive it. And that's hard for people to understand because they want to say, you know, are we making progress? Is there some number I can count? And there'll be lots of people having debates about that. But none of that takes into account the amount of work I see go on in the private sector that isn't countable in all those. Uh, models, honestly. It just isn't countable. Final question on the just transition. Um, should DM, should developed markets be subsidizing emerging markets in some capacity to facilitate the pace of acceleration? As a practical matter, if you take two countries, that uh, uh, developing countries or less rich countries, whatever the words are, uh, uh, and you think about them, there's, there's two different questions. One is one with significant resources under the ground that we have to make sure that we figure out a way that they don't bring them out. And that's a tough question because that's an asset. And they're saying, I could convert that asset into something. So we've got to figure out what that means, right? And then the second one is someone has none of that, but they just need power. 
and sometimes they can be both. The country can have both. So you just have to sit there and say, we need to get power to everybody. It's the way the world works now to be successful in the economy of the globe right now. You have to have uh, uh, computing power. You have to have lights. You have to be able to study. How we do that takes a lot of work. And so, yes, we in the developed countries have to think about that as one of the things we have to solve as part of a just transition because then it's just to them. On the other hand, we don't want them to go down that old path. So it's no different than saying they can build a cell service versus an uh, old-fashioned telephone service. We have to build them the new services. And the good news is a lot of them have tremendous capacity. We're, we just announced a project across 11 countries in Africa for solar. We did some uh, work with a private company across the Caribbean states and solar and wind. You know, there's a lot of energy and money going to these things that will will come to the table, but it'll take the development banks taking more risk. It'll take some of the governments mandating where people are going to go. It'll take the richer countries subsidizing it because we should, or else the only choice is to go the other way, and that's that's not going to be good for the final outcome. You talked in, in your comments a moment ago about you know exclusion and, and or divestment of assets, and, and as an asset manager, we often find ourselves under pressure to exclude companies or sectors or subsectors from portfolios. What's your view on the effectiveness of exclusions? I think the better answer is for you to demand a plan as, a, as, an, as an owner. If they have a plan, then you can start to say, okay, they're moving. Now the question is, can we assess that plan? Then you can start to talk about the quality of the plan, the depth of the plan, the pace of the plan, et cetera. But the first thing is put a plan on the table. And I think if somebody doesn't put a plan on the table, then you have to say, okay, can I do this? I think it's premature to say if that plan isn't perfect, you have to divest. I, I think that's, we're just not at that condition yet. So give us a plan and then disclose what you're doing around that plan. And that's the International Business Council, the World Economic Forum that I have worked with, a, a, the big four accounting firms and 250 companies have agreed to disclose these metrics, straightforward metrics that all you can look at and say, they have a plan, here's the metrics and plan, and they're making some progress. Those metrics align to the SDGs, 21 metrics. Behind it are submetrics, and behind it things like, where's your TCFD plan? So they're not new stuff. It's gathered together in a simple way, but it's in your annual report. So it's Sarbanes-Oxley in the United States and other constructs. This is what we're pushing for is straightforward plan metrics. And then I think you should stay with them until you lose confidence that they're making the progress that they should. And how much time do you think we should give organizations to change? I know how long it takes to change the culture of an organization. Is it 18 months? Is it five years? I think the plan has to come up relatively shortly. You've seen examples of that in the public sector companies who didn't have a plan and now they do. So I think that that'll come up. I think then it really depends on the company and 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 what the company does. Um, But you're not alone in this. This is going on with all the different constituents who engage that company. So even a law firm to provide services to Bank of America will have to have a plan because in order for us to be net zero, we'll have to have our supply chain net zero. And so therefore, we're going to be asking that of our people, are you net zero? And tell us. So that power of this big companies, four or 5,000 of them, saying we're net zero, drives through the supply chain, which is the right scope three. The broad scope three gets harder to measure, but the supply chain part of it, you can have accountability for. And that, that will drive through it. So when you say the plan on a table and they take ownership of the ones and twos and ultimately the threes, and you could hold them to it. I, th- I think you don't have to be overly patient, but you have to give them a chance to do it. Okay, so thinking about helping and sort of powering this change, what makes one initiative more valid than another? We're not out there saying, let's come up with a project no one's ever heard of and try to figure out how to put it together. Our clients are coming to us and saying, we have this, we have that. We, you know, we do a substantial amount of uh, the renewables in the United States are the tax equities on our books, so much that we have a billion dollars. Between that and affordable housing, we have a billion dollars a quarter in tax benefits. 
and we disclosed it that way, saying our tax rate would be X, 21, 22%. It's 11 because of that benefit. So, you know, this isn't charitable. This is, we, we, we make money on this stuff and the clients demand it. Do, what do we pick? You know, the environment's a dominant one. The, the other things, this isn't charity. This is a core business operation. We have charity. We do $500 million of charity a year. That we do, whether it's the arts or whether it's uh, health care, health or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, education and things like that. Don't don't confuse that. This is aligning the whole company behind you know, what the clients are demanding from us. Does it matter to you uh, if you can attribute every single dollar? Do you, do you care or can you be sure where your financing ends up? I mean, green bonds, you're kind of ring-fenced versus opening large lines of credit for corporates. Yeah, we, we, along with a group of firms, pioneered a green bonds and a, a description with investors like yourselves, what is a green bond, how do you qualify it, what are the standards? And I think, I think that's, that's a mature, relatively mature market, it's understood. As more and more gets done, you want to have more and more assuredness to it, and it starts to get interesting. So you, you're, we're all thinking these large companies have lots of people. We're now trying to say to our mid-market companies, you're probably in the supply chain of larger companies. They're making these commitments. You know, do you know about them? Do you think about them and stuff? We're not telling them they have to do anything. We're just saying you ought to be aware, and, and some are way aware, and some are still learning. And so you know, that's where I think it gets a little more interesting because they're not going to have the staff that can produce the data and stuff. Like the big companies will be able to sort of tell you where they are and, and what they're doing and be able to substantiate because they have so many calls on that information from potentially the regulators of the regulated industry, their customers, their other vendors and the managers. So I think the data can get there uh, for you to see it. You made a compelling case for the requirement uh, that uh, the private sector play in funding the transition, and a lot of it being demand-driven, I think, is is one of the most compelling cases. And it's and in a lot of ways, as you've described, it's the, the core business of Bank of America, and, and that's sort of neatly aligned. Um, but the extent to which the narrative says private sector must step in where governments have failed. Yeah. Is there merit in that? Well, I come at it more sort of mathematical. If you, if you, if you said, you know, what is the definition of long-term? You'd say the SDGs, the world spoke, 197 countries or 195 said this is what sustainable development means. It's like, we don't have to go find a definition. They said it, right? They say, what's the cost of putting those in? And you know, it, making the progress that's required, six trillion a year, they say. Okay, that's interesting. Where's that gonna come from? That goes back to the charity, trillion and a quarter a year. It's doing a lot of other things which are pretty important, but okay, that doesn't make it. The governments don't have the money. And so then the private sector is going to have to step in. And so we and other financial institutions have similar demand cycles driven by clients doing stuff to make progress on the SDGs. And that's where the money really come from. Is it stepping in where government is? No, because government can trigger activity. So when we, when I spoke to the G7 and the G20 uh, in the last year with, with the Sustainable Markets Initiative with King Charles, we went and talked to him. We said we need a price on carbon. You know, you need some mandates. Uh, the airline industry ended up de- developing a 30% sustainable aviation fuel mandate. We, he said, once you put this in, and it finally made it into the communique because those then create markets around. That allows the private sector to go. And then you need some purchasing. Government purchasing power is a strong purchase power, right? If they buy hydrogen trucks for the post office or electric, that changes the ability of the private sector to come in and have a supply chain into that. And then you need, you know, then you need permitting. You know, the, the whole debate in the U.S. about permitting and worldwide is the same question is, okay, we all agree we're going to do this, but we're going to put you through an eight-year process to get the permit to build. You pick whatever you need to do. Those are things. And so the government can, with their money, they can, and their tax advantage stuff, they can catalyze activity. With their mandates, they can help. But the, they really don't need to give cash out. And what they need is enable. And I think that's where the 
the interesting thing. The other big point we're making, a lot of people made this point, is that multilateral development banks and international finance agencies need to change their purpose to be less about end-state lenders because comp- millions of companies can do that and more about catalyzing private capital to come in, taking the political risk away or some of the other risks. And that's you're hearing Secretary Yellen in the United States talk about that. You've heard the, you know, President Macron talk about it. You heard it came out of COP27. Those things are out there. So, so I, I would never say we're replacing the governments. What we're doing is a practical thing that the governments only have the money the taxpayers give them. And by the way, that's fully deployed. They can help us, but the big dollars come from the trillions of dollars on our balance sheet to lend. Our expense base, our $60 billion expense base, we aim it a little differently. It changes the course of history. That's where the real money is going to come from. So they can help create the conditions for the private sector to step in and power the transition. Okay. Just moving on to physical risks. You know, we've been talking about transition risk. What about the physical risks that Bank of America faces when looking to finance businesses in regions where maybe climate change is having a big or an accelerated impact? The problem is in short term, it's just, it's, it's it's not that material risk. And so... The feedback our industry gives in the people want to incorporate this in stress test, it's nine quarters. There's nothing that's going to happen in nine quarters that's going to make that much a difference in the general climate risk or, you know, or sea level rise. In nine quarters, you know, is it really going to change the course of history? And a storm's going to come. Even if we got this all right, the storms would still come. And so I think we've got to be careful about overstating that. Over a long period of time, yes. But what you'll do is start managing the portfolios, which credit will become unavailable in those communities over time. Insurance will become unavailable over time because people just won't do it anymore. But if you only use economics as, a, as the driver to say you know, that property on the, uh, on the shorefront in a coastal area that could get hit by a hurricane or be subject to some flooding, it, you'll be a lot of years away from changing it. If you want to not have it built, you have to just say you can't build there. If you want to not have it insured, you can say nobody can insure it. But, you know, there'll still be people who have their own money and don't care about insurance to do it. But that'll start to limit the number of people. But I think we don't have a lot of near-term risk at all on this. We have climate experts. We put it. We disclose it. And I, but I really think from a philosophical or societal basis, to use that as the reason in the short term won't push people along. In the long term, it's absolutely true. But, again, it's too far out there. You want people to move because they want to avoid it out there. So have you had to change the standards uh, or, or, or the the risk management processes over the long term for your underwriting activities or when bankers are financing clients? Have you had to introduce at least an awareness yeah. of those risks and a reporting of those risks? Yeah, no, we do. If you look in our 10K, like everybody else, there's more disclosure in that. If you look at, we have a, a, a climate risk is embedded in our, one of our risk pillars across. All, so it's all there. It's just that when, when you get to a very pragmatic assessment, it's a long-term risk of which you, you can talk about, but you're not, that's not going to cause you to change. What you really want to cause the just transition to take place is we're going to not have that risk ever come up, and here's how we're going to, you know, people are going to do it, and you know, let's get people energized to make a transition so we avoid someday making that binary decision of I'm not going to lend or I'm not going to operate or I'm not going to do this because we'll have hopefully uh, gotten a condition such that there'll still be problems in those coastal areas in long term, but it'll be less. There was an interesting quote I read from you, I think it was under, through some of the work that you've done on the Sustainable Markets Initiative that said, we believe that we must continue to deliver great returns while also delivering progress on social and environmental priorities. And we've touched on that today. But I want to get to this time horizon question that seems kind of existential, because at some point, 2050 will be now. 
And so how do you, you know, leading such a large business, reconcile what's happening today, the near-term risks, and then again, those existential longer-term? So one thing is that's the profit and purpose. That's the basic uh, point there. And so, you know, we're saying we have to deliver for our shareholders because we won't have permission to deliver for society unless we can find a way to make returns. And this the shareholders or investor or company give us a capital and keep doing support. And we have to deliver society because, frankly, if we don't do it for that long-term, we won't have customers left. And that's the piece that we're, that the businesses have woken up to in the last decade is, wait, my customers demand. You know, if you look on a Google search for flights, it can, you know, what's the best emissions flight? My customers are demanding that. You take a bottle or take some, my customers are demanding, you know, whether it's my direct customer or my business, business customer, my consumer customers, uh, it, articles about using mushrooms as a replacement for leather. And you think of all those things, so the customers are demanding. So the second part is my business will be at risk because customers are making choices based on that. So, so what's the time frame? It's tomorrow. And then, and then, and then next, the week, the month, the quarter. It, you have to. You can't sit there and say this is long term, this is short term. It has to be a blended thought process. I have a view of where we got to get. We make progress every day. That progress has to add up to get to where we have to go. Um, but you know, we don't do things that lose a lot of money near term. Say, oh yeah, someday it'll work out in the company at all. But on the other hand, you got to be constantly investing for where we go. And and so take it out of the environment. We made a decision 13 years ago, and we we looked at how teammates paid for health care for everybody under 50000 We dropped the premium in half, and the number nominally has never moved. That's 13 years. And because we said we have to provide great health care for those teammates. What's that long-term mean? We have people who say, hey, my company cares about my health and does a great job. I'll stay here longer. And when you have 220,000 employees apply 10% turnover, think if we can knock that down a point to it, it saves us a lot of money. So is it long-term? Yeah, but near-term, what it did is it pulled the uh, attrition rate down and stabilized employee base, brought attrition from 15 down to 12. That saved us a lot of hires and had career mindset. And so you, you got a short-term benefit out of it, but the, the reality of the healthcare and, and using healthcare and getting your care taken care of is a long-term thing for that employee and their families that will pay us back in the future because when an employee's 50, they'll have a different healthcare outcome than they would have had otherwise potentially. You're making a really compelling case uh, for the requirement to deliver shareholder return and, you know, uh, some total social return because they're inextricably linked in your license to operate effectively. Um, but the market would say ESG's underperformed uh, over, you know, the last year. Um, and our company's sacrificing profit in order to do social good. One-year returns are really not, you know, you, you guys are investors, you know, it, it, Everything can win in a one year and it won't win the next year. So I think that's just not the proper time horizon. Investors don't look that way. But that's unfortunately how ports get built and measured. But I think if you think about long term, as a company, we've seen our ability to produce consistency uh, and outcome for the customers. So we've gone and added customers at a rate we've never added them before. You know, the customer score is the highest ever been. The teammate score is the highest ever been. The turnover on customers and teammates you know, fell to a low record. And then on the teammate side, it kicked up a little bit with a great resignation. It's come right back down on the other side of it. And then we're back almost to where we were working at that. You see all that and you say, you know, that's a good thing. You know, when you talk about us producing record net volume growth, net household growth in our businesses, you know, and, you know that's a good thing because that sticks to your ribs. And so I, I think... This will probably be our third highest earning year ever this year, but last year's our highest, and two years before that, three years before that was our second high. I mean, these are, you know, these are strong, big numbers, and so I, you know, our share price is down because our industry is out of favor because people think a recession's coming. But 
that doesn't mean it won't go back up. So I, I think we've got to be careful about the very short-term nature of this. So you've got to look across time. So we've covered a lot of the practical risks uh, and related balancing acts that Bank of America has to do. But your business is complex and it faces reputational risks. And I wonder if that impacts your strategy. And the views on sustainability, quote unquote, are rapidly evolving. And to what extent does the court of public opinion inform the decision making? Um, We really don't use public opinion. We have a, a, a group in a company. Uh, that we call the Responsible Growth Committee, and they make the decisions about policies, uh, policies of whether it was uh, policy of firearms or policies about you know these types of things, which get into what people would call more social issues. But uh, we made our decision about the type of firearms delivered multiple rounds in, in short periods of time, because it, going back to like the Charleston shooting, we had four of nine people in there. We had a teammate that got killed in the, in the Las Vegas shooting in the United States. In, a, in the Pulse nightclub, we had four teammates who were in there all night long. Luckily, they all got out. Uh, but other ones lost relatives. It was a few blocks from our branch. And so we built that decision about a very narrow question because our teammates came and said, oh, can we do something about this? And so our teammates are 200 plus thousand people. They have 600,000 family members. We have 60 million customers. So we take into account all that. We don't need to take positions. It's not like I need to be, we or any of my management team needs to be out there saying things, but we take a position and we stand for diversity and inclusion because it's the right thing to do to get the best team on the field. But it's a business-driven question, not a uh, charitable or political or anything else. And, and it's not, it's, this is, you know, this is capitalism done right, we think. This is what happens. Yeah, I think it's an interesting perspective. You, you have a lot of touch points into a very large community. But in real life, outside of Bank of America and, and across the globe, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, defense companies were considered bad ESG companies. And now national security is higher on the agenda. And with energy, we're now talking about energy security in addition to transition. So you know, how do you set a strategy when the sort of zeitgeist seems to be changing? Well, we just, we stay pretty true to ourselves. So I, I, it's been an honor to run this company for 13 years. We haven't changed what responsible gro- growth meant in those 13 years or how we run the company with the balance of short-term, long-term, the balance of, you know, customers, teammates, uh, shareholders in society. And, and so we can do that. You know, it's hard to describe ex- exactly how it happens, but you have your values, you have your culture, you have the reason to come to business and you come do it. And if it works, you can get more and more people. And so, you know, in those 13 years, we've had, you know, tens of thousands of people come to work for the company because they want to work for this company, not any company, this company. And so are we perfect? Nobody's perfect. Uh, But I think we create a great place to work for our teammates who then are going to do a great job for our customers. and, And that then bears out for the shareholders and ultimately all that bodes well for the community. So you know, and you have to think about it along all the multiple dimensions. Okay, so it sounds to me like focusing on the things you can control yeah. and effectively uh, worrying less about the things that are moving around you. Well, as a bank, we have to worry about everything that moves around us, but we focus on what we control for the purpose of how we run our company. Yeah. Um, I guess my last question is really, we've touched on it a little bit, what role do you see the regulatory and legislative policy playing to support the trans- transition to net zero? And what would be the, the thing you'd ask for? Well, yeah, we've been advocating for standardized metrics. You know, in the International Business Council, we developed a set of metrics. We have worked with the uh, ISSB and, the, and all the different you know, acronyms to, to try to say, look, these metrics are already disclosed by 200-plus large organizations have done it. Forty-some are on their second turn through the track, and the rest are coming along. So what we're saying is if you have companies from all different types of industries, all different parts of geographies of the world doing it, 
you ought to be able to say to other countries, you ought to be able to do this. And by the way, the big four accounting firms developed them, so all of them are probably audited by the big four accounting firms. So you think about that business system. So we're for standardization of straightforward disclosure. Because in the absence of that, you have a lot of people saying what's right, disclosure, and what's not. And we put all the energy into filling up all those different request classes. So you know, this person wants it done this way. This person thinks this is the most important thing. We have summaries for some of these third-party agencies. The executive summary is 30 pages long, and all of them are supposed to be material. And you're saying, how can 30 pages of executive summary be material, let alone hundreds of pages follow behind it? So I think the government could help by standardizing the metrics and saying this is enough, but keeping them high-level enough that people can do them and then figure out what to do. I think that's the, the key thing for the regulatory thing. they got to standardize you know, carbon credit. I mean, here we are. In 2022, we've been talking about this. To find the credits to, uh, to buy, we spend a third of the cost in internal cost to find them. That's like crazy. You know, I can buy a truck and with you know, two minutes of analysis. To find a carbon credit, we got to have you know, all this work. And so we need to get the government to say they got to be the good housekeeping CEO approved. We can't have all the informal standard setters. The reason why is then once they say it, then the money can come flowing into it. And now think of... Uh, $30 million revenue company, they'll know what to do. If you say to them, I got to deal with all these people that I don't know and trying to figure it out. And so we need standardization of credits. We need standardization of disclosure. And, and then once we say that's the disclosure, that's enough. We don't have, other people can't go around it and adopt other things because otherwise it just becomes more money spent on that than actually doing the work. So clear standards will help us accelerate. Yeah. Great. Our guest today was Brian Moynihan, Chief Executive of Bank of America. Thank you for joining us. That's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To hear what our investment team have to say about this interview and to get the broader investment implications of what's been discussed, listen to the trade-offs analysis also on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed. You can read more on this and other interviews with CEOs along with bonus material at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Check for links in the show notes. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark, with technical support from Adam Sheldrake and Callum Blitz. The editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.